times we'll move to a different passage over uh, Advent and look at things specifically uh, with the incarnation of Christ and then New Year's, a lot of times a sermon kind of towards new beginnings and resolutions and some things. Uh, this year we've stayed right in Genesis 3 and providentially the Lord has placed us right in a unique passage for looking at the incarnation of Christ and to look at Genesis 3 with a, a specific eye towards that. And now as we come to the end of Genesis 3, again with an eye towards that, also thinking of new beginnings and a, uh, a launch into something new as we will see there, we'll turn a major page here at the end of Genesis 3 as we now move into life outside of the garden, life outside of Eden. And while a lot of redemptive history has passed since then, it is the era still that we share in, life outside of the garden, awaiting the return of Eden and what that means for us. So we'll look at that this morning from Genesis 3. The first 11 chapters of, of Genesis, they, they give us the creation narrative, and then it moves into this sort of primitive history. And once you get to Genesis 3 till Genesis 11, it's kind of formed around five stories. And these stories are told with a, a, the same pattern or the same way each time. And by doing it, it teaches us about God and teaches us about man. Hopefully you'll see this kind of rise out. Now, each story has some uniqueness to it in the way it's told, of course. But, but there's a general pattern. So you come to Genesis 3 and you come to the fall. As you move on, Genesis 4, you will come to Cain and Abel. Genesis 5, the sons of God marrying the the daughters of men, and hopefully we can figure out what in the world's going on there. Genesis 6, then through 9, really, you come to the story of Noah and the flood. And then Genesis 11, you have Babel. And so these five events, and they, they work in really the same sort of four elements come out. First, there is a sin that is described. So the, the sin is described, or, or the problem enters into the scene. Then it's followed by a speech from God where he announces the penalty for that sin. God speaks, so th there is a sin, th there is a transgression. And then God speaks into it. And then thirdly, there is some type of grace introduced that mediates the penalty. As soon as there is sin, God speaks into it, announces the penalty, and then there is grace that mediates that the penalty must be paid, but Christ mediates. How is that penalty going to be paid exactly? And then fourthly, there is the penalty or the consequence that is then experienced because of the sin. And so you have these sort of four stages that you'll see repeated again and again in these five stories now that will take us through the rest of the series here in Genesis 1 through 11. Last week, we won't rehearse all of it, but just for those who weren't here, last week we went through uh, Genesis 3.15, and we really just looked at 3.15, that Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel, the announcement of the gospel, that immediately on the heels of the fall, on the heels of sin entering, is this word of gospel hope. There is that kernel, that seed of hope that is, is planted immediately after the fall. And so it's really the beginning of our narrative. Adam began there in his reading. And so as the curses are announced, the first curse then is on Satan. And you'll notice Adam and Eve aren't cursed. There is a curse that they experience, but it is only Satan that individually takes a curse. And the Lord announces that curse. 
And in the curse, there is this kernel, this promise of gospel hope that the seed, that the, the woman and, the, and the Satan, there will be enmity between them. That it won't be God against humanity and Satan, but it, it is God kind of taking sides with humanity here. And there will be a seed of enmity between, the, between Eve and between Satan. And then the offspring, and we looked at that last week, and what that means, the seed promise, the seed from woman. Life will continue and the seed will eventually be that promised son, Jesus. And then the seed of Satan, all that is evil and darkness and that follows. And there will be at war and there will be enmity. And in the end, Jesus will conquer. And we see how he will conquer. He will conquer by becoming a curse himself. He who knew no sin became a curse for us, became sin for us. Curses everyone who hangs on a tree. And then he will experience death in order to defeat death. And so that bruise on the heel is not just something to roll your eyes at. That is death that Christ experiences. Suffering, anguish, death. The Father turns His face away in order that He might, in that death, we talked about lift the boot, ready to crush the head of the serpent. And victory will be won. And so it's in this context of, of hope and cursing of death and life that we now continue in chapter 3 with the rest of what is said, but we see that even in the midst of the sin, there is a thread of pulse coursing through it is grace and hope. God taking the initiative to care for his people. So just to review, remember Adam and Eve, they partake. The serpent comes at the beginning of Genesis 3, deceives Eve. She sees that fruit and deceives her and deceives Eve that somehow she can take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what they were forbidden to partake of, it kind of symbolizing autonomy from God or finding longing and satisfaction and, and knowledge outside of God and what he has set forward for his people. And Eve is deceived by the serpent and she partakes. And then Adam comes along and he partakes. And immediately God enters the scene and he calls out to them. And in a very gracious way, he questions them. Not to gain knowledge, but he questions them. And they immediately, they know their shame, their sinfulness and their shame. And they cover themselves and they hide. And then we have the pronouncement of the curse on Satan. And now we come to our passage that we will look at today, really beginning in verse 16. There's three elements that we'll look at this morning. The first is this, and that is the consequence of the fall. While it is mediated by grace, there is still consequence for the sin. Before we get and look at the specifics of it, I just want to make application that there is consequences for our sin. Even though God mediates and is gracious to us in the midst of it. It might feel like, you know, it, it, the sin is pretty well hidden or pretty well managed or whatever it might be in your life, but there are consequences. They're real, they're tangible, they take place in time and in space, and they can often be devastating. And sin that remains in the heart and is enjoyed and is sought after and is unrepentant and willfully you consume of it again and again, there remains a strong warning for you. 
that the consequences could be that your faith indeed is not genuine, is not saving, is not real faith that sets you free from the bondage of sin. So while we look at the grace coursing through this whole story, I don't want to paint over the real, genuine consequences of sin. But as we look specifically then at Genesis 3 and verses 16 and following, we see that in general, the curse towards Adam and Eve strikes at the very heart of the, of the identity of man and woman their maleness and femaleness and, and the gender and the appropriate roles that God created and equipped them to successfully thrive in. And then together what he ordained them to do, mainly to work, to cultivate, and to care for, and to, and to continue this sort of creative process in God's creation. It strikes at the very heart of Gen- what Genesis 2 tells us God created man and woman for. So before we get to Eve, just to back up, if you remember in Genesis 2, as he creates men and women, and it talks about it's not good that Adam is alone. And so he introduces Eve. He's, gonna, he's going to create woman for man. We look back in Genesis 1, and we see that individually and together, they bear the image of Christ. There is dignity. There, there is equality in their dignity before the Lord. And so there, there isn't a sense in which one is greater or superior to the other. But man and female distinctly bearing the image of God. And then together in their maleness and femaleness, together in community, they, they uniquely bear the image of God, the triune God and His trinity and His community. And so together we learn this about them and that together then they are to cultivate God's creation and they are to be fruitful stewards of it and they are to propagate and spread God's glory beyond Eden out into the world. And then we move on to Genesis 2 with the actual creation of Eve. And there's two words that are then used to describe Eve, if you remember. A helper and suitable. Because of the fall, as we'll see in a minute, those have super negative connotations in a lot of our minds now. That We would think that's all that a, a lady is, is a helper, someone who suits the eye of the man. But we see within the context that what it's saying is helper, that strong helper, the one who comes along and, and helps others in their weakness. Helper is used primarily two ways, if you, if you can remember some of this. It's used to describe God as he helps his people. He is the helper of his people. Secondly, is, it is used in a military setting for reinforcements, that when the, the enemy is coming and overriding, reinforcements arrive, the help comes. And so it's that idea of that strong helper, that one who comes alongside of and is that, that, that perfect, strong reinforcement to help where the other one is weak. And then it describes the, the woman as one who is suitable for the man. And, and that word is a kind of a compound word of it, she is like opposite. She is like the man. She's opposite the man. And the idea that, yes, as God would look out and see all the animals and see there's no one who is suitable for Adam. There's no one like him. So you have Eve who is like him in his humanness and in, in his dignity and his image bearing. 
but at the same time is opposite, almost like that puzzle piece that fits perfectly together, that, that together then they can image God and they can fulfill God's call and task for them. And so we see that male and femaleness, and we see the gender and the, the roles that are assigned to them and we look around creation now, and there's always this debate going on, right? Like, is gender just a kind of a, a social um, assignment or construct? I was going to say contract, but that's not right. A social construct. Or is it something created? Is it something inherent? And I would say that both are true, right? There is a sense in which, depending where and when you are born, there are certain gender things that are socially constructed, but we see all the way back in Genesis 2, before the fall, there is also gender roles to which you were created and equipped specifically to fulfill and to thrive in. So the very heart of, of who God created the, the woman to be with the man and together it is at the very heart of that that the curse comes. And so verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now this is a little sensitive. My wife is going to have a baby in just a few weeks. <laughs> so the pain of childbearing, just a few days for some of us here. And so the pain of childbearing, the curse as it comes, <coughs> excuse me, but we see this, the, the promise that the seed will come from the woman, that deliverance will come from the woman, a seed will come, life will continue, and there's that joy in that promise, but at the same time, it will now come with pain, with anguish, with turmoil, with sorrow that, that revolves around bringing human life into the world and caring for that human life. And it is now full of, of pain and turmoil. And it's beautiful and glorious and a blessing, but it is also surrounded with the pain, it's surrounded with turmoil. You continue in verse, uh, you continue there, and it says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. There's a lot of different ideas what that might mean. Your desire shall be for your husband. I think if you go to chapter 4 and verse 7, the, the same phrase is used there in verse 7. It kind of helps us understand what it's saying. Verse 7, you come to Cain and Abel, and Cain's sacrifice is not accepted by God. And in his pride and anger, now sin is ready to come and to take hold in his life. And so in verse 7, it says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So its desire for, is for you. It's that idea. It wants to have dominion. It wants to have control. It wants to take over and, and control you. It wants to dominate you. And chapter 4, verse 7 is saying, no, you need to rule over. You need to have control over that. So then back into our context, her desire is for her husband to, to rule over him, to, to dominate him, to flip what God created her to be as that strong, suitable helper, and instead to dominate, to rule over. The very heart of her natural relations now, the curse affects that. 
The joy of children is met with this multiplication of pain and turmoil. The relationship with, with her husband of, of one that was going to be beautiful to reflect the image of God now, that is now the description of it is she will wrestle with that wanting to, to dominate, to rule, to usurp her place. And at the same time, in the irony then, he shall rule over you. What he should be then as that loving provider headship where together they, they rule and together they, they cultivate. And he leads in that. Instead, it'll be uh, an, the tendency towards dominating and to unloving ruling over someone. And so you see in this, it's not prescriptive and saying it has to be this way, but it is descriptive. And here is where the attack will come. And I think we all understand that, right? In that gift of relationship and love with one another, now the curse affects that. And those natural relationships suffer and feel that tendency of selfishness, of pride, of unloving. It's filled with pain, with, with turmoil. To the man, <clears throat> to the man, he continues in verse 17, to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. I think he rehearses for Adam, it's a little blurb here, rehearses for Adam his part in it. Because I think for Eve, you see, she was deceived by Satan that he came and, and he, he deceived her, and yes, she, she disobeyed. And Adam, it seems to paint the picture back here, is standing back, instead of leading, he's standing back and he's just watching it take place. And it's almost as if he sees her take of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and nothing happened to her right away, and so he sort of willfully just joins in. And God curses the ground because of him. It says, In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Continuing in verse 18, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. His rule, role of being that natural head and the provider and the protector, all of that is going to be frustrated by the fall. Work itself is not cursed. It was created by God. It is good. But now the arena, the context of our work will be frustrating and will be painful. The same word is used there of, of the, the pain and turmoil that will be multiplied to the woman in, in childbirth, will be multiplied to the man in, in, his, in his labor, in his toil, in his working, so that the fruits of your labor never seem to measure up to how much effort and work you're putting into it. That while there's some meeting, at the same time, it's met with, with, with frustration and with hardship and with just toil. If you have a job, you know how that is. It's not always just the delight of your heart and mind to be at work. And whatever you do just becomes so fruitful and meaningful. And, and you just skip home as the blessed provider. No, it, it can be hard. It can be difficult. 
It takes sweat, the thorns and the thistles. There's going to be hardship. It's, it's never going to be met with the appreciation or the gratitude that you feel like it should. It's going to be frustrating. Every job, every arena has its own trials that way. You can think of it easily in the gardening and the cultivating of the thorns and the thistles and the weeds and all the work that goes into it. But every job, every arena has that. The fruit of it just doesn't nearly seem to make sense with the amount of labor and the time. The frustrating aspects of it. The earth will resist him, will defy him. What he should rule over now, he almost becomes a slave to it. And while he needs it to get his living from bread, from the earth he will get his bread. It will defy him all the way until it eventually swallows him back up to dust. He shall return. That's why Ecclesiastes, as, as you look at it, it begins with all, that saying right at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, I looked at, at all my toil and it is all vanity. That by the end of Ecclesiastes 2, in verse 11, Solomon looking at all that he's worked for and accumulated, says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had experienced in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This idea that because of the fall, work can just seem and feel pointless. It's abused as a means of pursuing selfish gain. It's met with ungratefulness and conflict. But again, moving back to Genesis 1 and 2, what was man created to be? He was created to be a worker. God worked, he created, and then he turned it over. This, this work of continually cultivating or culture making and creating was given to the man to continue in this work. It, it's a good thing. He was created to thrive and to do it, and he was equipped to do it well. I mean, that's set up in the Ten Commandments. Often we look at that <clears throat> on the call to Sabbath, and we just look at the day of rest. But it's six days shall you work. And on the seventh, you shall rest. You were created, you were equipped to work, to do work. And so it's not that work is a result of the fall or the curse, but it is the frustration, the anguish that comes with that work. So what does it mean for us now that this is how we will experience work Again, it's not that work should be run, for, run from as a curse itself, but that we should allow the gospel to speak into our work. <laughs> that we look back to remember, we were created for this, we were equipped for this, and it is good for us. And so let the gospel then redeem it and transform the way that we walk into work each day, that it changes our motivation for work, that it really is for the glory of God changes it from that selfish motivation of whether it's just gain, 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 or, or I need constant praise and, and flattery, but changes the motivation for our work. The gospel can redeem that, can reverse that aspect of the curse. The gospel gives us meaning of Sabbath rest, that we are able then to step back from our work and realize that our achievement in work doesn't define us. That's our relationship with the Lord it changes our ethic at work. That it's not, again, each arena has its own 
temptations ethically. But you wouldn't be lazy, that you wouldn't be dishonest. You wouldn't go after wrong ways of gain. Finally, the, the gospel should change our conception of work. That it's not just an evil I have to walk through until I get to do what I really want to do, but that indeed you were made for it. You can thrive in it. It will be met with frustration and toil a lot of the time. But it's to be done for God's glory and in his strength. And then finally, the end of that curse, to the dust you shall return. That idea of sickness, decay, and death, that was promised for those who broke God's law, and that will be the result. Death. So you have this consequence because of the fall. Secondly, as we continue now in verses 20 and 21, you have a new name and a new covering. So a consequence for the fall, now a new name and a new covering in the midst of all the sadness Two things happen here again that give us great hope, that again we see just grace just coursing through as God mediates graciously the penalty that is due us. When you come to verse 20, it, it really is a surprising, abrupt switch, isn't it? This announcement of the curse and death and your work and you'll toil all your days and then you will return to the earth and that's your lot in life. And Adam turns, and the man, the next phrase, the man calls his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Her, Eve, the name means life, or life giver. Right after this announcement of the curse unto death is this, this naming of Eve as life, or life giver. Uh, it shows us that Adam was listening and with ears of faith, he was able to hear that kernel of gospel hope in Genesis 3.15, that from the woman will come a seed, and he will crush the head of the serpent. And Adam, I don't know how much he got, I'm sure, a very veiled and shadowy understanding of what was coming in that promise. And yet by faith he received it so that even in the midst of this you will toil until you die and return to the ground. There is this sort of declaration of hope. that There is a promise of life that humanity will continue and from this God's promise of deliverance will come. There is a new name. He, he uses there what's called the, the prophetic perfect tense. I only bring that up, just he's, she doesn't have any children yet, and yet he's already declaring it as if it has happened. You are the mother of all the living. I know we've just been promised we'll toil and we'll die, and you don't have any children yet, but I am proclaiming it, the prophetic perfect tense in faith. He proclaims that Philip Melanchthon, who was kind of the sidekick for Martin Luther, he says this, the name Eve is the seal of grace. That is, if God always attaches to his gospel promises a seal, then the promise that the seed of the woman would be victorious over evil confirms that the name given to Eve was indeed the seal of that promise. So in that promise of Genesis 3.15, it is sealed with this name given to Eve. You have that sealing of the gospel promise. 
So a new name, and then we see a new covering in verse 21. And the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed clothed them. God provides them clothing. You remember back in in chapter 3, in verse 7, they recognize their nakedness after their sin, and so they grab some fig leaves together and they make a little loincloth, it says, to, to cover not just their nakedness, but to cover their shame. And it's, it doesn't get the job done. And so now, in chapter 3, verse 21, God gives them a new covering, a garment or a tunic of skin, a, a garment that would hang down the, the knees or the ankles. He provides for them what they can't provide for themselves. That is a covering for their shame. And I think it is foreshadowing in the way that he does it. Because it's not the way that Adam and Eve thought to do it on their own. It's not their best attempts and their man-made ways of covering their shame was to get some leaves together. And... But God does it in a totally different way. He takes the skin of an animal and Adam and Eve would see that. In order to get the skin of the animal, it means you have to, to kill that animal. You have to shed that animal's blood. He, that animal has to die. And I'm sure for Adam and for Eve, this, this had to have been a surprise. And yet immediately soak into their mind that promise that when you do this, when sin comes, there will be suffering and death. Sin comes. Sin enters the world. There's suffering and there is death something else has to die and suffer in order for them to have a covering for their shame. A covering for their sin. And as believers on the other side of those gospel events, we recognize what is being foreshadowed here. But you see it growing through the Old Testament. And by the time you get to Leviticus, in Leviticus 7, when the, the animals are come and they are sacrificed for the Lord, it tells that the skins are to be kept and they are to be presented to the priest. And so the priest, as it sees these skins, as it sees these garments, is reminded something had to die for the covering of that sin. To cover that shame. It continues that by the time you get to the New Testament, Our justification is described as a garment or a robe of righteousness. We are covered, we are cloaked in grace. This imagery just continues, it continues, until in Revelation we are given new garments of white. And so even in the midst of the sin and in their shame, God provides He provides a covering for their shame that allows them to have fellowship with one another again. That allows them to fellowship in some way with their God again. He is sovereign in it. He takes the initiative. He doesn't tell them what they have to do to create a covering. He takes the initiative. He does for them what they cannot do for themselves. We see this gospel hope in this story. A new name a new covering in the midst of the sadness. Then finally, our third item in this text, and that's the expulsion from Eden. Verses 22 to the end. Let me read it one more time. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's interesting that he drives them out. One of the reasons they can't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or they can't eat of the tree of the life after partaking of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil in some way, to drive them out is both judgment and it is a release. That death will come, that they don't live in that eternal state of sinfulness. But death releases them from that. And the way it's told is that sort of ironic way, going back to the beginning of Genesis 3, when Satan says, do you want to know what it's like to be God? Then partake of this fruit. And in a turn of phrase, now that they've become like us, knowing good from evil, again, sort of that inner Trinitarian talk, now that they know what it's like, the result isn't this, oh, I'm satisfied and I have autonomy from God and it's, it's so great. No, it's expulsion from the presence of God. And they're driven out. Eden was the original divine space. It is where God dwelled and where his people were invited to dwell with him. Listen to this quote from um, Voss, a biblical theologian. He says, The garden is the garden of God, not in the first instance an abode for man as such, but specifically a place of reception of man into fellowship with God in God's own dwelling place. So it was God's abode where he is inviting and receiving man into his dwelling place, into his presence. There can be no doubt concerning the principle of paradise being the habitation of God where he dwells in order to make man dwell with him. So now Adam and Eve are forfeiting the very thing they were created for, fellowship with God, to enjoy God. From intimacy comes alienation. It's a strong word there in verse 24. He says he drove them out of the garden. He ejected them. Sin separates from God. That's what's taking place here. In the end, this is the real judgment. As they give up paradise... And what is paradise? It's the dwelling place of God. It's where man comes to dwell with God. It's not just lush trees and beautiful fruit and garden and the picture that you see. It is God's dwelling place. Paradise is dwelling with God. Verse 24 there, he drove them out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There is no way back in. And he places the cherubim there to guard the presence of God. That, that, that sin can't enter into that intimacy and that presence with God. We see that cherubim reappear, don't we? In Exodus, you come and you have the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant are two cherubim. And they stand there oh, watching over, guarding the presence of the Lord. And you can't come near and you can't touch or you die. And then you have the, the temple that is established in Exodus. And you'll see it again in the tabernacle out in, in Chronicles. And you have that massive veil that stretches across, separating the holy place from the holy of holies. And you know what's embroidered there on that veil? It is the cherubim, again, protecting, guarding you 
from coming into the presence of God and His holiness striking you down. And you have these cherubim and they guard the presence of God and, and you're exposed from Eden and there's no way back into it. And then we saw it last week. We just celebrated it on Tuesday morning. John 1.14 Jesus then comes and He tabernacles, He pitches His tent, He temples among man. The presence of God with man. And you see His life and what happens then as He hangs on the cross? The curtain is torn in two. It is rent in two. The cherubim that are guarding the presence of God. Finally there is access. There is a way into the presence of God. And you see that cherubim set up early on in Genesis. Guarding. You can't approach God. Access is denied. And through the death of Christ you see now the, the cherubim on that curtain as it's torn apart. And access to God is allowed. Revelation 4 and 5. You have that beautiful scene of the four living creatures. You have that, that weird description of the four living creatures where they have eyes all over them and they have six wings and their heads like an ox and they have all this stuff. Well, if you go back to Ezekiel, you see that same description of the four living creatures in Ezekiel 1. And it explains these four living creatures. By the time you get to Ezekiel 10, these living creatures are, are guarding the presence of God and they're removing the presence of God from the temple because of the sin of man. In Ezekiel 10, it tells you those four living creatures are the cherubim. So now we get to Revelation. And we're in Revelation chapter 4 and there is that, that vision of the throne of God high and lifted up. The four living creatures surrounding the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And then you come to chapter 5 and now you have the scroll with the names of the people of, <coughs> saved. Uh, salvation, how, how are these, the scroll going to be opened up? How are these names going to access e eternal life? How, who is worthy to open up the scroll? And again, you have the four living creatures. If you were surrounding it, guarding it, no one is worthy to come and access this scroll. No one is worthy to come and open it up. And the cherubim surrounding it. And then finally, what does the text say? Verse 4 of chapter Revelation. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open up the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the cherubim said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And here you have this cherubim with the flaming sword guarding the presence of God, expulsing the people. Get out of Eden, get out of paradise, and never come back. But there's that seed, that kernel of hope. A way will be made back. A way will be made that you can have access to God. A seed will come. And we look through the Old Testament and we wait for it and we wait for it. And we have, we have the Ark of the Covenant. We have the Holy of Holies. And we have places where there's this moderated way that we can access God and we can get a covering for sin, but we're still awaiting the fulfillment of that seed. And then when Jesus comes, he rips that veil and the cherubim separate. And we see that scene now in Revelation, looking down from Revelation, we're finally... They rejoice. The cherubim say, here is one who is worthy. Here is one who has won access to our God. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. We live in the same era as Adam and Eve and people who have been thrown out of Eden, experiencing the fall, the curse, the frustration that comes with it. But the gospel changes everything. It redeems those so that in time and space it can redeem your relationships. It can redeem the way you relate with one another. It can bring meaning and purpose and, and redeem your work and your time spent and your labor. The, the head of Satan, the, the, the final blow has already been made. It's, it's that, to use the, the, a chess analogy, you have the person in check. God has him in check. Satan's making a few final moves, but checkmate is coming. The heel will drop. The head will be crushed. When that finally is consummated and fulfilled, then we're invited back into Eden, into paradise, where the tree of life stands, where we will join with myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. We struggle in the fall, but there is grace and there is mercy and there is hope that courses through it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it speaks right in directly to our lives right now.